All right, let me invite you now to stand as we read together Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, we'll start in verse 3 and read down to verse 16. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 3. Notice what Paul writes as he ends this letter. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the very first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stychus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, greet Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, greet Julia and Neros, and his sister and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Feel like I should receive a round of applause. <laughs> We're getting through that. No, not really. We're getting through that list. Let's ask the Lord to bless His Word and use it for our souls this morning. Father, thank you for, for your word, for your church. Thank you that we can rejoice in Jesus. We pray that we might find the gold. Lord, where is the gold here in your word? Help us to see it today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Sunday is a good day. Sunday is a necessary day. Sunday is the Lord's Day. We celebrate on Sunday because we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We gather because we are compelled to do so. If you're a Christian, what we do on Sunday is vital. That's why we'll do everything we can do. Make sure you have the option, as it is, to gather. <clears throat> Sunday, we come together and worship and, and sing, read the Bible. We come together to have our souls fed by God's Word, to rejoice in Christ, to, to be healed. Many of you have been beaten beaten mentally and emotionally, and it's good to come to the church and have just the love of Christ wash over you, to have the fellowship come around you. It prepares our hearts for what we've got to face the next week. As I looked over this passage uh, this week, going through it over and over again, reading it over and over again, I wondered, what will I do with this list? Why 
is it here? I mean, there are at least 26 names on the list. If you look up and get Phoebe, that's 27 names on the list. This has to mean something. Why did God put it here? It has to mean something. One thing I know that it means, I heard Vody Balcom say, we even sang about it today, it, it means that God knows names. That he calls names. Jesus in the front of the grave called out to a name, Lazarus. Names. God knows names, and when those names are written in the blood of Christ, when those names are in the book of life, then those names are the names of his children. A list of names in the Bible is nothing new. You can find it in Genesis chapter 5 when you have the list of names that goes to the seed that will be Christ. You can see it in the book of Numbers. You get to the book of Matthew. You have a genealogy of Jesus. The book of Luke tells us names. They mean something. But the question is, what does this list mean? Connie and I were walking yesterday. We almost always do on a Saturday morning, go for a long walk. And as we're talking, we typically talk through the passage. And I was talking to her about it. I was telling her about the list of names. And Connie's suggestion is that maybe it was the very first group text in Christian history. <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Could be what it is, but I think there's something here. I think there's something worth our time looking at and thinking about. There is something here for the church. There is a template. There is an example, an illustration, a reminder of who we are and why we exist. Let's get the context of the passage. It's what we do here. We read things in their context. Paul has written to this small church in Rome a church he's never visited. He obviously knows a lot of people there. A church in Rome that is living under, remember how this church is living, living under the most corrupt emperor that Rome ever had. Man, his name was Nero. They're living under a godless government, this poor church is, but it's not suffering, at least not like you would think, this church is thriving. This church is growing. This church is evangelizing. This church is moving. This church is discipling. This church is sending out missionaries. And in this passage, Paul is closing down his theological letter to the church, and he's greeting his friends. In fact, when you read it in Greek, 16 sentences start with the word greet, saying hello to someone. And as he does that, he's giving us little snapshots of people inside that congregation. He's letting us know what this church is made up of. And he's giving us some encouragement. There is beauty here. There is encouragement here. There's, there's focus here. There's clarity here. There's there's life in this text as we think about what it means to be the church in the days ahead. Now, we just finished a week celebrating 65 years of Hickory Grove Baptist Church. It's then a good time for us now to start a new week looking forward to the future 
and looking forward to the future with hope as we consider who we are and who we're supposed to be in light of this passage. Here's what I think. That God made this church for this moment. God in heaven, our sovereign good God, made this church, Hickory Grove Baptist Church, and by association, you in this church for this moment. I think there are some things we can pull out of this passage and maybe apply to our own lives and to our church. I'll start with the first one, maybe the most important, number one. That is that the church must be radically focused on the gospel. The church of Jesus Christ cannot be derailed. It must be radically focused on the gospel. There are lots of ways to get at that point when you read this passage, but really the best way to do it is just to go through the passage, just go through it. I feel like I've been through it a hundred times now. Just go through it and look at how many times Paul uses the phrase either in Christ Jesus, in Christ, or in the Lord. Those three phrases, in Christ Jesus, in Christ, or in the Lord. He uses it in verse 3 when he talks about Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila. He uses it in verse 5. You can drop down to verse 7. You see it again in verse 8. Shows up again in verse 9. There it is again in verse 10. He brings it back in verse 12. It shows up in verse 13. I mean, nine times in 13 verses. Look, if this were a Christian song, if this were a worship song, if this were a hymn, then in Christ Jesus, in Christ, or in the Lord would be the refrain. And that refrain is there to remind us that the very heartbeat, we can't forget it, the very heartbeat of this fellowship, the very heartbeat of our movement itself is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus is the reason for our existence. It is the core of our being. And the minute, this happens to churches all over, and the minute that we are known for something else besides the gospel, we have become cultural hyenas eating off over some other movement's leftovers. That's not what we do. Now, when I say gospel, we need to be clear on what I mean here because everything has sort of become the gospel, become a gospel issue. Everything that is called a gospel issue is not necessarily a gospel issue. What then is the gospel? Well, when you read Paul's letter to Rome, you get a real feel on what the gospel is. He talks about, we use the four categories. He talks about God and the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the wrath of God in chapter 1. Talks about the goodness of God and the love of God, a good God that has created all things. God, holy. He also talks about man. Man being the crown of God's creation. That's you. When I say man, I mean man and woman. Given dignity because you have the image of God in you. 
That's why we respect all humankind, because people are made in the image of God, but that image in you has been disfigured by your own sin. Sin that is not just bad things you think or bad things you do. It's badness that has corrupted your entire character. The old Puritans used to say that even our tears of repentance need to be repented of. Separated from God in need with no real hope. But that's not where we end. That's where we begin. The gospel begins when, when we understand that being dead in sin isn't the end of the story. It doesn't have to be. The story takes on light when we think about Jesus Christ, the God-man. We believe that He's fully God, fully man, that He lived on earth in such a way to redeem not just our sin, but to redeem even our good things. He kept the law in the way no one else ever has, Earning righteousness, when I say earning righteousness, that is to say he came righteous, but he lived it out for us. There at the cross, he then takes the righteousness that is a man's righteousness, gives it to us. And it goes to the cross. Why the cross? Because sin must be punished, and we can't stand that punishment. There on the cross, God poured out the full wrath of his punishment on Jesus. It's what we believe, substitutionary atonement. This is the gospel. And Jesus died in the place of sinners. Three days later, God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He now rules over heaven and earth. And the gospel is this. If you'll believe that, if you'll turn from your sin, believe it, then you are saved not by anything you do, not by baptism or good works, but by what Christ has done, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the gospel. Now, when we lose sight of that, it's a danger. This city is dotted with churches that have lost sight of the gospel. When we lose sight of that, we turn on one another. And if Christians turn on one another, then the light is snuffed out. And that can't happen. How then, when everything around us is coming apart, how does the center hold? How, how does it hold? This is what we believe, the good sovereignty of God over all, thing, all things, the authority of the Bible that gives us the rock to stand on, the centrality of the cross, the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross in the place of sinners, the need for all people to repent and believe and the call to share Jesus with the world, those are the things that keep us centered. What is it? What is it that threatens you? <clears throat> what is it that threatens you to be knocked off your focus of the gospel? Maybe you believe all the things that I've said so far. What sin are you battling? Maybe something that feels overwhelming. Maybe something that's making you compromise everything you, you believed. What are you battling? You need to know that the cross is sufficient for that. Those of you that are thriving spiritually, whose life are you speaking the gospel into? Who, who do you, let me ask you this, those of you that believe the gospel, who is it that you actually need to forgive? You've been wronged, maybe terribly wronged, and you, if, as long as you're carrying that, you're not going to function rightly. 
you need to go to the cross of Jesus and leave that there. Who do you need to forgive? You see, the church in this day and time must be radically focused on the gospel. Let me give you something else to consider from this passage. Number two, <clears throat> second point. The church, number two, the church must know how to love, to love. The old song would say, they'll know we're Christians by how we love. I say that because this passage with this list, this passage is permeated with affection for people. You see it in verse 5, Paul speaks of Epinetus, the one that I love, my beloved. In fact, he is the very first person that I led to Jesus. You see in verse 5, the very first person I led to Jesus in Asia. Now think about that connection that Paul has with that guy. Down in verse 8, he speaks of Ampliatus, or verse 9, Stachus, verse 12, Persis. And just on and on again, he just, my beloved, my beloved in the Lord. He reminds them, loved in the Lord, loved in the Lord. I don't know when the church got so hateful. But it, I mean, it just can't be. That's not what we do is, as, the, um, as the writer James said, my brothers and sisters, this should not be so. I think it's one of the dangers of not meeting together. I think it's one of the dangers of not being in fellowship and worshiping together and seeing one another and talking to each other. It's, it's why we've got to press to keep meeting. It's one of the dangers of not actually praying for one another. I, I have no doubt that brothers and sisters in Jesus will oftentimes degree, uh, disagree. Sometimes they'll do it almost profoundly they'll disagree. But those who are in Christ, and if you're in Christ, this is you, those who are in Christ have no choice but to love like Christ loves. Yes, yes, we, we certainly rebuke sin. We, we need to provide correction when a brother or sister has gone off the trail. I mean, there are times when Paul excoriates people in church. Then he follows it with affection and prayer and fellowship and love. We never stray far from the cross. Why? Because the cross reminds us of the love and grace and patience, the patience that God has had with each one of us, the grace he's given us in Jesus. And if you are a part of Hickory Grove, how are you, how are you doing it? How are you tangibly, seeably, discernibly, audibly how are you displaying the love of Christ? Let me press a little harder on that. If you are displaying love and it's being misinterpreted, sometimes it is misinterpreted. You think you're saying something in love, but by the tone of your voice, it was received as if you were being critical or damning in some way. So if that happens, if your display of love is misinterpreted, what are you doing to follow it up and make sure it is communicated correctly because the burden is on the communicator and not the communicatee. As individuals and as a church, we are loved by God in Christ and the church must be a people that knows how to love. I think you find that in this passage. I think there's something else here that's really interesting to me. Number three, let's take a look at that. About the church, 
Number three, the church must be diverse, diverse, different kinds of people in the church. Now, normally when you say this in a church like ours, you're thinking uh, black and white or black and white and brown. That is, those are really good lines to think of because I think that's appropriate, but it goes further than that. I mean, in the passage, you're going to find Jews and Gentiles. Look there in verse 3, you find Priscilla and Aquila. They are Jews. In verse 7, you have Andronicus and Junia. That's probably a married couple. And Paul says, they're my fellow kinsmen. They're Jewish. Mary in verse 6, she's Jewish. All kinds of Marys in the New Testament. Mary is Jewish. Down in verse 11, go down there. Herodian, my kinsmen, obviously Jewish. So you see lots of Jewish Christians in the church in Rome. But if you keep on reading and you get down to verse uh, 14, you have all these Greek names, Greek and Latin names, Jews and Gentiles. That's diversity. There's other diversity here. You'll find also, I would write down male and female. Now, Jews and Greeks, that is normal in the church. We heard a lot about that, and Paul writes a lot about that. He talks about there's neither Jew nor Greek. He'll even say there's neither slave nor free. In Christ, he even says, there's neither male nor female. He proves it right here. This is a remarkable. You know what's not normal about this list is the number of women in this list. Think about the society in the first century, a patriarchal society. It's mostly male-dominated. Go and read what happens in Rome, how the male head of the family, how terrible it could be. And what Paul does here is remarkable. Do you know that, that this list of 26 or 7, fully one-third of the names on this list are women? There are nine of them. And what's a big deal is that Paul doesn't make a big deal out of it. That's a big deal in itself. People will... People will accuse Paul of being misogynistic. He indeed was not, as he brought women great honor, even in this passage. You'll find slave, not just women, male and female, you'll find slave and free in this passage. You get down to the verse 14, just drop down there with me to verse 14, and that list of names in verse 14, most of those names are actually names of slaves. Now just think of it, think of it. We have our own context in the United States. You can think about uh, slavery in the 1700s and 1800s, and oftentimes uh, slave owners would bring the slaves to church, but they would sit separately in a gallery or something. That, that's not what's going on here. But what you're finding is those that used to be slaves and maybe those that used to be owners sitting together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's significant. You know what else I think is significant? I think it's significant that we have not just male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. I think it's significant that you have old and young mentioned. I, I say old, you drop down with me to verse 13, and Paul speaks of Rufus's mother, and he says of Rufus's mother, she's also a mother to me. So she is uh, pretty aged. And yet, you find also, when you keep reading, you have those two girls mentioned, two young women. I think it's significant that you have married couples and singles mentioned. 
Several names stand by themselves that they could have had their spouses, but he goes a long way to mention married couples. He mentions two of them, and then he mentions other singles. Here's, here's my point in, in just giving all of that. Here's my point. The church is the last place where we need homogeneity. Homogeneity. Do you know that word homogeneity? Homo means same, genetia means type, same type. The church is the last place where all we need is just the same type of people. Real diversity. When I talk about diversity, real diversity makes the gospel of Jesus Christ shine brighter. We are not searching, we are not searching for diversity for diversity's sake. We want diversity because what it does is it actually shines light on the gospel because they're not anything else that's making us hold together except the gospel of Jesus. Isn't that what Paul said, Ephesians chapter 2? Take the Jew and the Gentile, bring them together in one new man. As a member of this church, let me just ask you a question. As a member of Hickory Grove, who are you intentionally loving that is completely different than you? Who is it that is completely different than your group that you actually are tangibly loving? And how do we make sure that seeking diversity is not just for diversity's sake, it must be so that we are adorning the gospel, the shining light back up on the gospel? For the glory of the Lord Jesus, you see, the church is to be radically focused on the gospel. The church is a group of people that knows how to love. The church must be a, a gathering. Everyone we see here is a diverse church. Let me give you a fourth thing to think of when you think of the church. Number four, the church must be ready to work to do something. You find that over and over. I'll, I'll dial in to verses 3, 4, and 5. There's a lot of text here for Priscilla and Aquila or Prisca, which is short for Priscilla. Prisca and Aquila here in the text. The, this couple is an interesting couple. Let me just read something about them in verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Notice what he calls them, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Also greet the church that's meeting in their house. So we find out some things about Priscilla and Aquila here. They're mentioned six times in the New Testament. They show up around Acts, maybe Acts 18. Paul was especially close to this married missionary couple. They had uh, the same work. They were tent makers. They met in the town of Corinth where he wrote this letter from. He met them on his second missionary journey. Acts 18, we see Priscilla and Aquila, they, they come up on Apollos. Apollos is that great preacher, wonderful eloquence. He, he's preaching Christ, but he didn't have a developed Christology, a developed doctrine of Christ. And Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and taught him some things. They were his co-workers. Paul says in this passage, they, they work so hard, they, they stretch their neck out like you would if it was going, your head was going to be cut off. They, they risked their necks for me. They obviously were at least well off enough to have a house big enough to have some people in there to call it a church. 
worked. Verse 6, Mary's mentioned, Jewish woman. She worked. Verse 9, Urbanus, the worker. Verse 12, Trophonus and Tryphosa. Look at those two names in verse 12. Those, most people believe those are, are, are young girls that are twins, women working. Persis, Paul says, he worked. And when Paul talked about each one of these, he used the Greek word synerge, which means co-laborer, fellow worker, partnership. A partnership, is that how you see what you do? At your, a partnership in the gospel ministry. You know each person, every single person here, every single one has a role to play. And those roles are different, so different. They, they match who you are and the difference you bring to the body of Christ. And each person has a role to play. Sometimes those roles are extremely different from one another. Yet, you are still co-worker. Let me ask you a question, a couple of them, as I think about this, this one point. Are you an attender or an investor? Attender or investor? Now, another way you might say it, it's been a popular word, are you a spectator or a player? Sidelines or involved? Or, or, or here's another way you flip it over. Uh, are you a doer or a watcher? Well, we've used this before. Uh, are you a thermometer that tells us what the temperature is and how it needs to be changed? Or are you a thermostat that actually provides some change? The church, it must be radically focused on the gospel. The church is made up of people that actually know how to love. The church is genuinely diverse. The church is ready to work. There are other things here. I'll just, I'll just give you one last one. Number five, the church is made up of people that are eager to celebrate. We're eager to celebrate. We're glad to celebrate. I'll just point out a couple of things. Verses three, four, and five, we talked about Priscilla and Aquila enough, but they are missionaries. Verse 7, Andronicus and Junia, they are, Paul calls them fellow prisoners. They are missionaries. It is a church that celebrates sending missions. We should be a church that celebrates our missionaries that are risking things for the gospel. Not only that, they're a church that celebrates conversions. Look what Paul mentioned down in verse 5. Epinetus, Paul, I mean, think of the thousands of people that came to Christ because of Paul's ministry, and he's, he's paused enough to point out Epinetus and his conversion, celebrating that conversion. Think of the stories each person brings to the table, and Paul looked at 1 and verse 12, and he brought up this story that's a fascinating story. Do you see, I'm sorry, not verse 12, verse 13, do you see the name Rufus down there? Rufus has an unbelievable story. He shows up earlier in the Gospel of Mark. The man John Mark wrote the Gospel for the, the people in Rome, and he wrote it in such a way that though the church in Rome would know who he's talking about. In Mark chapter 15, he tells the story of a man named Simon of Cyrene who came to town with his two children. Simon of Cyrene came from the country. He's the father, you might know him, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And Simon of Cyrene carried the cross of Jesus, 
that man's boy is going to church at that church in Rome. His mother is a mother to Paul. There's a story there. And Paul sort of just mentions it in passing. A story. What about those girls? Look down with me at those girls. How about those two girls in verse 12? Never discount the power of young girls. Tryphena and Tryphosa. T take a look at that. I would even circle that. Tryphena and Tryphosa. Most people think they were probably twins because those two words mean the same thing. Delicate and dainty. That's <laughs> what the words mean. Delicate and dainty. And here's what Paul's doing. Keep looking at it. Paul is using something called positive irony. It's like called on a really big man, tiny. Positive irony. He says, delicate and dainty. Now look what he says about them. Look how hard they work. Workers in the Lord. Maybe my favorite, and I don't know why, because I got a little bit of a twisted sense of humor. Maybe my favorite down here is verse 15, where Paul says, greet Philologus, philologus. You see those words? Philo is the word love. Remember, Philadelphia, brotherly love. Logos is the word word or talk. Greet that boy that loves to talk. Philologus. What is Paul doing here? He's going through and celebrating all of these different stories that the people have, and it's good to bring them up in the church and to celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus and the blessing it is to be a child of God, the blessing it is to serve this church at this time in this place and do it for God's glory. I could go on. I could talk about how they call attention people that are willing to suffer and be in prison and, and risk their necks. But God speaks to his church through his word, and he does this for the church to be strong. For us to be a church that is focused on the gospel, for us to be a church that knows how to love, to be genuinely diverse, ready to work, and, and eager to celebrate the different stories all found inside the church. So what I'd like to do today as we close together, I just want to give us some opportunities to reflect on what you heard. Since we can't really have an invitation right now, why don't we just bow our heads and you, you think with me over some of the things that I'm going to lead us in. Won't you join me? So we bow our heads together. Here are a couple of questions that I'd just like to put to you, and I want you to think of you, think of yourself and no one else right now. What is it that you need to do to realign? Let me speak to Christians. What is it you need to do to realign your focus on the gospel of Jesus? It may be something drastic. It, it may just be an adjustment. What is it you need to do? Here's another question uh, for you. Who do you know that is hard to love? Think of someone. It won't take you long. Think of somebody you know that's hard to love. And 
what will you do this week to love that person? Here's another one. How can you break out of your sameness, your own group or tribe? How can you break out of that for the gospel's sake? How can you do that for the gospel? We talk a lot about mission, sharing the gospel. Just had a week of doing church missions. We bring it up oftentimes. There are opportunities for mission. I would just ask you, what are you doing? What is your partnership? Could be giving, it could be going, could be praying, supporting, could be doing, but you have to have a partnership in mission. And then because we are a faith of hope, we just need to remember there are so many things to celebrate. What about the stories that you know, maybe your own story or people that you are close to, what do you need to celebrate? Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the church. And I pray that you find us faithful in the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing together.